Matthew chapter 7, the title of this message is Truth-Telling Without Judging, Part 2. There's some details we need to take care of from last week. We spent most of last week talking about the without judging part. We need to spend a little more time, give a little more attention to the truth-telling part. And just be sure that we've got that down. As you guys are opening up in your Bibles to Matthew 7, I do want to remind you that my notes that I preach from are available online before every service for you guys to download. Uh, I know that I give a lot of information, a lot of verses, a lot of points, and so it would be very helpful for you before you come to church to download those sermon notes so that you can really concentrate on application and what the Spirit is saying to you specifically while you're listening to the sermon and not have to write down every single thing. I invite you to even bring your laptops and have them open to the notes. You can uh, download them on your iPhone and read them on your iPhone. Just resist the temptation to surf the web if you guys are doing that. And then they're also posted with the sermon forever online. So later on in the week, if you want to go and get the notes and go through them. But I want to make those available to you. Make sure you know about that because I think it's helpful to have the notes in front of you to retain more. Lord, we ask that as we're in your word now, that you would do a deep and beautiful work in our hearts. Jesus, that more than ever, we would be in awe of your love. More than ever, we would be transformed by your grace this incredible truth that though you're a righteous and holy God who we have radically sinned against, you love us and have not condemned us, but Jesus took your wrath for us on the cross and he conquered sin and death to give us new life. And now we live a life of favor before you. Our standing is in righteousness. You deal with us according to grace and kindness. And that, Lord, even as we continue to fail, you are very nice to us. We ask that these truths would be beautifully transformative in our lives, in our community, and in the nations. And that we would be agents of transformation, having grasped, laid hold of by faith, the truth and the fullness of your gospel. On this very hard topic today, Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us about how to be truth tellers, how to confront error in the right way that glorifies you and is consonant with your word. We ask that you'd please anoint me to teach and to preach for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked carefully at the fact that Jesus forbids us as Christians to judge and condemn others. If you weren't here last week, you've got to get that message because again, this is part two and they go together and that was important information. And we looked rather carefully at what it doesn't mean to judge and condemn and what it does mean to judge and condemn. And that's a complicated issue for us in our Christianity. So we're trying to sort that out. And the reason that we're examining this so closely is because we were, we have been fascinated by the way Jesus dealt with a woman caught in adultery. We've been fascinated by the way that he deals with a person who has performed poorly how he treats her, how he treats us with such kindness that she was clearly guilty and we are clearly guilty. And Jesus didn't deny that. He didn't gloss over that. But instead, because of the cross, he was able to say to her, I do not condemn you. And we're fascinated by a God 
who was so thoroughly offended by sin and yet because of the own giving of himself is able to free us from condemnation and restore us to fellowship. We are fascinated, not just by John 3.16, that God so loved the world, but by John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So we're examining this concept of judging and condemning and truth-telling because we're fascinated by the God who pardons the wicked, who came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus then, this one who refuses to judge and condemn sinners, but rather frees and restores them, becomes our model. He is our model for living life on mission as we take Christ into culture. He is our model for interpersonal relationships as we embody Christ to one another. And as we're discussing these things, we quickly realize the difficulty that this presents, this concept, judging, condemning, and truth-telling, for two reasons. The first reason we realize it's difficult is because we are so thoroughly prone to judging and condemning one another. I hope that you've realized that this week. As I have been continuing to realize that as we dive into the word of God on this topic, how given we are to doing this in all sorts of different ways with tons of different people all the time over and over again. I hope that this week you've been enlightened by the spirit of God and you've been wonderfully rebuked by the spirit of God and you've been made more aware of your attitude toward other people as I have been. If after last week's teaching you have not been made more aware of, you haven't been drawn to a deeper place of repentance and humility, and if you haven't started to view people differently, then one of a few things is happening. Either number one, you are absolutely amazing. Or number two, you did not pay attention. Or number three, you do not care and you are not applying the word of God to your life. Some of you are absolutely amazing. And you're doing very well. Others of you are like me. And you need to repent more now than you realized a few weeks ago. And we need to remember the consequences of our judgmentalism and of our condemning other people. We spoke about them last week. We'll look at it now from James. The same idea, James 2.13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The New Living Translation says it simply and somewhat more clearly, yet less poetically. It says, There will be no mercy for those who have shown no mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. As we discovered last week and we see again here in James, in some way, the way that we deal with people will affect the way that God deals with us. The degree to which we experience the life of Christ in us and through us is affected by our attitude toward others. And that should move us to a deep place of humility and repentance as we're seeking to experience more and more of the life of Christ in us and through us. So we realize this difficulty because we are prone to judging and condemning other people. It's part of our culture and we need to repent of that. And number two, we realize the difficulty in balancing not judging and condemning and yet having a commitment to truth-telling. 
We are a people who are radically concerned about right and wrong, truth over error, as Jesus is, and for God's glory. And so we need to understand the difference so that we are not strong-armed into, listen, ungodly passivity. We don't want to be strong-armed into ungodly passivity where everything is okay and we turn a blind eye. That's a, a misunderstanding of who God is and who we're supposed to be. And that leads to multitudes of Christians living sloppily. So we need a clear understanding of the difference of these things. So I want to review my three main points from last week in reverse, and then we'll kind of unpack that last one a little bit to shed some light on truth-telling. The points in last week, we cross the line from truth-telling to judging and condemning when we, number one, make any negative decisions about people's motives. We talked about the fact that only God can know the hearts of men and women, and that he has exclusively reserved that ability and right for himself. And when we judge the motives of others, we commit idolatry and blasphemy. We put ourselves in the place of God. We do something that God has reserved for himself. Number two, we cross the line from truth-telling to judging and condemning when we attempt to hold people to and punish people for violating anything less than God's rules and standards. Talked about the fact that the person who doesn't get the gospel needs to always add rules and standards because they don't know how to live apart from rules and standards. They don't understand grace and mercy and freedom from the law. So they add to the law as the Pharisees did. And they deal with themselves according to how they perform and they deal with others according to how they perform. And that's a sin. And then finally... We cross the line from truth-telling to judging and condemning when we think less of or treat people poorly because of how they do or do not behave or believe. That's the one we want to think about a little bit. That doesn't mean that we do not confront those with wrong beliefs and wrong behaviors. What we need to get is when, why, and under what conditions do we confront sin in others. When, why, And under what conditions do we confront sins in others? I'll have four points on this. Let me summarize them with pithy statements and then unpack them. Remember, as we make these points, that the context is interpersonal relationships. We're not talking about church discipline. We're not talking about governmental rule. We're talking about living with one another. The context is also in the church primarily of the verses that we'll look at to unpack these, but it does have missional implications. This does dictate how we deal with those outside the church. All of these four conditions that I'm going to give you right now must be met when we confront the sin of others. Number one, we confront sin when we are genuinely concerned for the well-being of the other. We confront sin when we are genuinely concerned for the well-being of the other. Number two, we confront the sin of others only after we have confronted sin in ourselves. Number three, we confront sin with the goal of restoring the other, not punishing him or her. And number four, we confront sin in an attitude of genuine, other-centered, God-glorifying love, gentleness, and humility. 
I'll clarify those by stating the opposites. We do not confront sin when we, number one, are concerned primarily about our well-being. We do not confront sin, number two, when we are concerned primarily about others' failures. We do not confront sin, number three, when we desire to punish others for their failures. We do not confront sin, number four, when we have an attitude of anger or a desire to reject. We need to see these in Scripture and unpack them a little bit. The first place that we see these is in Matthew 18, verse 15. I'll put it up on the PowerPoint for you so you can stay in Matthew 7. Very popular statement by Jesus. It says, And if your brother sins against you, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, when we hear that, most of us who have been in the church or involved in Christianity or reading our Bibles for a while, immediately think ahead to the following verses that have to do with church discipline. It starts here in verse 15 by saying, if someone sins against you, go to them in private and deal with it. If that fails, in the next verse, it'll say get another couple people so there's some witnesses and go as a small group to confront it. If that fails, you take it before the church, meaning the leadership of the church and churches such as ours. And if they still don't repent, they're put out of the church in an exercise of church discipline with the ultimate goal that they might come to their senses and be restored to fellowship with Christ and with us. Most of our minds go immediately to the church discipline part and skip over this interpersonal part. The reason is, number one, we like leadership to handle things. That's one of the problems in the church. We, we put too much on the paid clergy, on the people up front, on the professionals, so to speak, and we want them to handle our Christianity. We want them to handle the church, failing to realize that we are the church, We are the church and we have the priesthood of the believers that every one of us is called and anointed by God to be the church, to do these things. But we have this consumeristic failure within the church in America where we want the leadership to handle it. So we immediately jump ahead to church discipline. The other reason, more sinisterly, if that's a word, more sinister reason that we skip ahead to the next points is because we like others to get busted for their sin. We do. We love grace and mercy for us. We love when we get away with it and we don't get busted and someone lets us off the hook and and, and they're kind toward us. But we like other people to get busted. And so we skip ahead to the point where it says the church is going to have to deal with them. But I want you to see where Jesus started here. He started with the one on one relationship and the hope of restoration. The rest is if that is, is, comes into play if that primary relational effort fails. But Jesus started by dealing with the one on one aspect with the goal of restoration, of restoring and making right relationship. The rest is only when that fails. And that's another sermon, the church discipline thing. What I want us to see here is that we do at times confront sin. No doubt about it. Jesus says here, if your brother sins against you, go to him and reprove him. But I want us to see the goal in that. 
The goal in that is to win the other person back to a place of healthy relationship. It says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. The problem with us is we want to win arguments. We want to triumph in conflict. We're more concerned about being right than being reconciled. This is an area where I've failed in my own personal life and in my leadership so many times. I was more concerned about being right and winning the argument than I was being reconciled. And that's a failure. Jesus here is always pressing us toward the importance of people. That's not to say that right and wrong are not worth fighting for. They are. But we do not sacrifice people on the altar of right and wrong. The reason that we don't do that is because Jesus was sacrificed on the altar, the cross, in our place. Therefore, we don't need to sacrifice people on the altar of right and wrong. That's kind of the point of the cross, is that Jesus dealt with, handled, took that justice for us. And so the goal in our relationships is always restoration, never rejection. It's always restoration, never rejection. That's why Jesus dealt with a woman caught in adultery the way that he did. That's why we're fascinated. Because of the cross, he wasn't merely letting her off the hook. He was putting himself on the hook in her place that she might be free from condemnation, that she might be restored. So... We confront sin when we are genuinely concerned about other people and our right right relationships with them. The phrase there is, you have won your brother. We need to temper that now with something I think we all know by common sense and by scripture, and that is that we don't always confront sin. Then we would fall into sin sniffing. We would fall, fall into detrimental fault-finding and legalism, and we would be heavy-handed and, and lose the joy of the Lord and not be a, a, a community of freedom anymore. I think we know, we, we know this intuitively from relationships like parenting and marriage, that we don't nitpick each other's faults. That's not the gospel. It's not the church. It's not who we're called to be. That's not what we're called to do. Love does not always confront sin. Love also covers a multitude of sins. And we need the Holy Spirit to know how we balance that. And when we confront and when we cover. Now look here in Matthew 7. A couple verses of review from the parallel account in Luke 6 last week and then some new material. Verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. New material now in verse 3. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Very familiar passage. There are lots of imagery. We can see ourselves walking around with these big logs sticking out of our eyes and 
The word hypocrite is something we, we like to point toward other people, but we need to remember that culture has assigned it to us. That the not yet Christian world sees us primarily as hypocrites. We need to deal with that. And we see a lot of hypocrisy within the church. And what we're seeing here is that what governs the appropriateness of our confronting sin in and with one another is our careful attention to verse 2, which was review material from last week. Verse 2, For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. What governs our confrontation of each other's failures is an overarching attitude of Christ-like generosity. Remember last week we spoke about that in the way that we measure out grace and kindness and forgiveness to others, it will be measured back to us. And we had that ancient imagery of grain being given and it's put in the container and it's pressed down so as to fill up all the spaces so you get a generous amount of it. It's shaken together to fill up all the crevices and it's flowing over, pouring over into our lap. And so if our attitude is obedient to that call of Christian generosity and measurement toward others, that's going to go a long ways in confining and conforming and dictating and controlling how and when we confront sin in one another. If we're ruled by the attitude of generosity, oh man, they've blown it so badly. But so have I. And God has dealt with me so kindly, so wonderfully. He's been so nice to me. I'm going to be so nice to them, so generous with them. I'm going to let love cover a multitude of sins. Think of that word, a multitude of sins. We're concerned about every little sin with one another, but love covers a multitude of sins. And when our hearts have been revived by the gospel of God and we become aware of the kindness that we experience from him, it causes us to be generous with each other's failures. Generous in extending kindness. A core component of the mission of God and our Christian faith is that we have been blessed to be a blessing. Right? The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12. That extrapolates out to us. We are blessed by God in order to bless other people. We are not merely the recipients of God's gifts and blessings. See, there's a disconnect because we often want the gifts and we want the blessings and we just want to be recipients. We just want to receive, but we are not called to be merely recipients, but we are called to be channels of God's gifts and his blessing and his kindness and his grace and his mercy. We're called to be channels. We circumvent the mission of God and true Christianity and the outflow of the gospel when we become mere receptacles. When we merely want to receive, we're called to channel everything. Every good gift and blessing that comes to us by God is both for us and then supposed to flow from us into the lives of others. As God's channels, we must realize that we do not exist merely to enjoy what God has given us. That's one component. We should enjoy it. But we don't merely enjoy it. We are to pass on 
what God gives us. And primarily in our context here, it's forgiveness, grace, kindness, compassion, mercy, freedom. This concept is inherent in creation. God created us to be image bearers, channels of who he is to the world and to one another. And it's explicit in such statements as Colossians 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. There's that channel thing. Just as the Lord forgives us, as we have received, we now give. It's that idea of having been created in the image of God, by having fallen from grace, and then the cross of Jesus Christ comes, and we are recreated in the image of God. We become redeemed image bearers. And as image bearers, we reflect and show forth into the world that which is true of God, that he's very nice to those who have failed very badly. And so we need to create and be a community of care and safety. This is what the church is supposed to be. We need to create and be a community of care and safety where people feel cared for, not condemned. Where people feel safe enough to be honest about who they are. People feel cared for and accepted, not condemned, and it's safe enough for us to all be honest and real about who we are. Why do you think that in the church and in Christianity there are so many fakers? Why do you think there's this thin Sunday veneer that exists where we come and pretend like we're something we aren't? Where we hide away? our failures and our struggles and and, and then we circumvent the design of the church by God where we bear each other's burdens. We shortwire that because we haven't been kind enough to each other. We haven't created a community of care and safety and so nobody feels open enough to be true about who they are and so they're left on their own to struggle through these difficulties when God has ordained and designed that we would carry each other, care for each other, help each other through these things. Because we refuse to do so in our arrogance, our communities are not safe. They're not places of caring. And so we continue in our hypocrisy and our thin Christian veneers and the world sees it. We only fool each other. We only fool each other. We look each other in the face from the pews and say, are you okay? I'm okay. We're okay. Cool. But the world sees it. And it circumvents mission for the glory of God to the world. We need to create and be communities of care and safety. We need to be very nice to people who have believed and behaved very badly because Jesus is that way. And we base our existence on who Christ is. We are told in these verses about 
wanting to deal with the speck in our brother's eye while not having dealt with the log in our own eye, that we're to look at ourselves first. And and the reason that Jesus says this, and it's very clear in the imagery of something in our eye, is the more clearly we see ourselves, the more rightly we see others. This statement is important. The more thoroughly we confront our own sin, the more compassionately we confront others' sin. The more thoroughly we confront our own sin, the more compassionately we can confront other sin. But the starting point of our mission to confront sin, corruption, and injustice in the world has to be self-confrontation. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're so concerned about dealing with others, deal first with yourself. Otherwise, we earn the reputation that the world has given us of being judgmental and hypocritical. And we create communities in the church which are fearful and condemning. We need to be more intentional to confront our own sin and then we'll be more compassionate with others. So we confront sin when we are genuinely concerned for the well-being of others and we confront the sin of others only after we have confronted sin in ourselves. Let's see more of this as we turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, you realize that verses and chapters and their associated numbers were added later. They're not a bad thing, but they're not necessarily a God thing. They're not what we consider part of the inerrancy of Scripture or even the inspiration of Scripture. They're there to help us, but they can sometimes be harmful because where a thought was just continued and there was not originally a new chapter, it was a single work, we've added chapters. So sometimes we've got to back up to get the flow of thought. So for time's sake, we're just going to back up into Galatians 5 just a little bit into verse 25. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Okay, we have new life through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, so let's live accordingly. Verse 26, therefore, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So, Paul here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is talking about walking according to the Spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh, if you recall the broader context of Galatians 5. When we're walking in the Spirit and not being ruled by the flesh, we're humble toward one another. We're content with our identity in Christ. When we're not, it's verse 26. We're boastful. We're competitive. We envy one another. We begin to deal with ourselves on the basis of comparison. 
which is utter folly because you can always find someone who's doing worse than you. But if you look hard enough, you can always find someone who's doing better than you. So it's completely meaningless. But we live in a culture that has conditioned us to compare. And we live in a culture that I might say inspired by Satan has held up examples that we cannot attain to. We have idolized human beings. We have overlooked their horrific shortcomings and put them on a pedestal. We have airbrushed them and remade them and refashioned them and publicized them and imagined them and fantasized about them to a point that is unreal, but it conditions the human soul to operate on comparison. And the Bible says that's, that's the stuff of the flesh. The stuff of the spirit is to not be boastful. Oh, better than they are. Look what I got going on. Challenging one another. Oh, I'm going to outdo them on that. Envying one another. Gosh, I wish I had that. I wish I looked like that. wish I had those gifts. What this does when we have that attitude is it causes us to deal with people poorly who fail. And this is what we do with our idols in this country. We raise them up just as high as we can so we can see how far they fall. And we delight in their falling as much as we do their exaltation. And so this thing is deep in us of handling poorly other people's failures. And so in the same thought then, the author says, brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Moving away from comparison to self-confrontation. You who are spiritual, a reference there to chapter 5, verses 16 and 26 of walking in the spirit. Those of us who are walking in the spirit need to be concerned about restoring. This tells us that a measure of maturity is how well we deal with people who have failed. That's how we measure Christian maturity, how well we deal with people who have and who are failing. And when we do confront sin, the goal is always to restore, not to punish. Interpersonal relationships, not talking about church discipline, not talking about governmental things. Interpersonal relationships, the goal is always to restore and not to punish. The idea of restore here is to put a thing back in its appropriate condition. Someone's caught up in sin. You know what happens when you sin, right? Life goes wrong. Things get messy. Things get weird. Things go awry. To restore someone is to put them back in the right condition. It's a verb. It's an action word. It means that we have together as a church a a, a active responsibility toward those who are performing poorly in our midst. To restore them. To help them get back to the appropriate condition. This is a word that the ancients would use for fixing or mending things. Fishermen would use it to talk about mending their nets. Same word in the Greek. Physicians would use it to talk about setting a bone or or mending the body in some way. 
right? Where, where there's holes, where there's breaks, we're to be agents of repair, of restoration, of renewal, of fixing, of repairing. So metaphorically, the phrase is used here for the mending of broken people. And the idea is assistance, not punishment. Restoration, not disciplinary action. The problem with us is we love to punish. It's part of how we feel better about ourselves is by feeling bad toward others. We love to punish and to make people feel bad and to see people feel bad. It's because of that comparison thing. The more bad we can make them feel, the better it makes us look. The antonyms to this word restore are to dissolve utterly, to renounce or disown, to reject or to cast aside. Okay, those are the opposites of what we would do. If somebody's failing among us, we are to hold them and hold relationships together, not dissolve them. That's one of the biggest failures in the body of Christ. If someone is hurt within the body or they don't like what leadership did or their needs aren't being, expectations aren't being met and so they dissolve the relationship. They bail out. Some of you are here because you did that to your previous church. You need to go repent and be reconciled. Christians don't dissolve relationships. We hold them together. We don't disown or renounce like so many are doing in Christianity because others have a different flavor of Christianity. We don't do that. We identify with, because our identity is in Christ. If we agree upon Christ and who he is, then we don't renounce, we don't disown, we identify with. We don't reject, we accept, because we ourselves have been accepted when we deserve to be rejected. And we don't cast aside, we stick with. We're too easy, to, too quick to throw each other under the bus, to cast each other aside, to say, I'm done with that, it's too much, I'm over it. And the calling from Christ is to stick with one another. So we do this thing of restoring, putting in the appropriate condition, holding together, identifying with, accepting, sticking with. And we do it in a spirit of gentleness. That phrase in the Greek means an inward attitude of gentleness. It's not a mere, uh, you know, Veneer. It's not just an exterior thing where we're just trying to go with a meek, gentle voice, but it's a true attitude of gentleness. The opposite would be to try to confront people about their sin while you were angry or irritated or with wrath. You know from parenting that you don't do that. Right? You don't deal with your kids with your kids' failures when you're angry. That's lesson number one. You know, you don't deal with your wife's flaws when you're irritated by them, right? These things are radically detrimental to relationship. And we don't confront each other's sins from a place of anger, irritation, or wrath. That's how we imagine the crowd acting who caught the woman in adultery, full of wrath, anger, irritated. But how we see Jesus is with the spirit of gentleness, this inward quality of kindness, Once again, that verb restore was especially used as a surgical term. When you think of a surgeon, you think of someone who is delicate, who's very careful with their work. We come to expect this from surgeons. My daisy love was diagnosed with that tumor. We did a lot of investigation into who her surgeon would be. 
We wanted to make sure, wanted to meet the man, I wanted to look in his eyes, I wanted to shake his hand, I wanted to discern his quality of character. I wanted to know that this was a careful, thoughtful, gentleman. We expect that, right, of surgeons, that when, when your body is open and they're dealing with you, that, that, that they're careful. This is the idea behind that word of restore. Daisy Love has to go in for one more surgery. They'll have to take her port out. She has a port in her chest where they access her to uh, inject the chemo into her. Now she's going to have to go and have that surgically removed. And as she's going through cancer, she's so thin and at times seems so frail. And, and she's got this thing inside of her. And I just the thought of them cutting her open and removing this thing that is connected directly into veins, you, just, you hope and you pray that you have a surgeon who is gentle and careful. And we are called to be surgeons in our confrontations with one another. Gentle and careful as Christ is. Restoring one another then is part of our corporate responsibility as members of the body of Christ. We confront sin in an attitude of genuine, other-centered, God-glorifying love gentleness and humility. But looking to ourselves is part of our individual accountability as members of the body of Christ. We have corporate responsibility and individual accountability. And in this verse, remembering what Jesus taught us in Matthew 7, when it says to look to yourself, it means to spy out, to concentrate, to give attention to. You see, there's a lot of people in the church that are that way toward other sins and failures. They're spying it out. They're sin sniffers. They're they're giving attention to it. They're they're contemplating. They're thinking about it. What the Bible says is we need to spy out our own sin. Contemplate our own weaknesses. Give attention to those things. It's a present active participle. What in the world does that mean? It simply means that it is a continuous or ongoing action. It means that the lifestyle of the Christian is one of always spying out our own sin. Thinking about our own failures that we could be right before Jesus Christ by His grace. Realizing that if we are concentrating on ironing out our own imperfections, we're going to be less likely and have less time to squabble over others' imperfections. Warren Wearsby commenting on this verse said, the legalist is always harder on other people than he is on himself. But the spirit-led Christian demands more of himself than he does of others in order that he might be able to help others. The reason that we're able to do this to extend that grace and kindness, the reason that Jesus did this and was able to do this to the woman caught in adultery is because of the already, not yet, reality of the kingdom. Okay? The already, that the kingdom came with Christ and was exemplified at the cross. And that the kingdom is coming with Christ and is exemplified in the throne. One author commenting says, between this already and that not yet stands the believer who is called upon to emulate the behavior of Christ, the ultimate burden bearer, 
who came to restore, not to condemn the sinner. Reason. Christ is able to extend kindness to humanity right now and that we are able to do the same is because of historic justice, justice met at the cross, and prophetic justice, justice that will be met at the throne. This historic and prophetic view of justice enables us to give generously to those who have performed poorly. And so verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And verse 3, and here's where we end. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Speaking of those who in their own minds fancy themselves as having done well by comparison. They think themselves somehow morally superior, somehow better, in their Christian walk. And so rather than bearing the burdens of the weak and those who are struggling, they condemn and they judge and they look down upon. Realizing, or what we must realize, is that our model is Christ, who was something, to say the least, but emptied himself and made himself nothing on our behalf, taking on the form of a bondservant and dying in our place. And if the God of the universe who spoke all things into existence can humble himself to be kind to others, cannot we? The culture into which this was first introduced was the ancient culture of honor and shame where boasting and self-promotion were the norm and were expected. And confrontation of error was to shame somebody and so it was a very difficult issue. And it was radically counterculture to suggest, as the text is here, that someone of higher status should gently care for someone of lower status who is failing, falling, and burdened. Because in this culture, burden bearing was seen as the work of a slave. That's why it says in Philippians 2 that Christ made himself a bondservant because slaves bared the burdens of others and that's what we're called to do. The pattern of Christ and the message of the cross went against all the major social assumptions of the Greco-Roman period. And so it is in our day today. The way that this confronts our culture and our social assumptions is that we like to say generally, live and let live. Which means we don't like to confront sin because who's to say? That's their deal. It's right in their eyes. If it works for them. These things confront that cultural assumption. And secondly, live and let live says, we don't bear one another's burdens because that's your problem. You got to deal with that. The cross confronts that, turns these social assumptions on their heads and calls us to confront with compassion and to humbly bear each other's burdens, to be like Jesus. Lord, we ask for help in these things.
we ask the Holy Spirit of God you would just continue and do a deep work in us of transformation. You alone know the issues of our hearts. You know what needs to happen. We can't summon this. We can't fake these things. We are not good at these things. We need to be transformed, redeemed, image bearers of a merciful and compassionate God. Perhaps, Lord, you would somehow enlighten us of how much mercy we've received, of how kind you've truly been to us. Perhaps you would rattle us out of self-absorption, bring us to a place of deep humility. I invite you to come and get on your face before this awesome God. Be humbled by the cross as you take communion. And if you need any help of any sort, the prayer team is here.